And so here we are in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26, as we pick up the story. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, and as we talk through this, this is, this is the situation, is that uh, just, just in between Jerusalem and Capernaum, is Samaria. That is, that is where Philip was doing the work of the Lord. And, and now he's making his way down and he has been prompted to go all the way down to Gaza. Now Gaza, if I were to use the analogy of the United States, it's like going as far south in the United States, making your way through Key Biscayne, through all of the keys. Now you're at Key West. You're, you're kind of at the very end of the, the furthest you can go and still be in the United States. This is where Philip is sent to the furthest, farthest reach of Israel, of the, of the Holy Land, that would, could still be possible. And it's going to be at this point where he meets a rather interesting character. One of the most interesting characters, really, to me, in all the New Testament. But before I get into that, I want to kind of just have us have a perspective and some context, even emotional context, to be able to appreciate the wonderful, bountiful depth of this story that we're going to encounter. And for me, I made probably a dozen different forays into trying to seek God in my life. You know, as a kid, I think I was earnest about catechism. Then my family imploded, then exploded in a variety of different ways to the degree that there was just kind of too much shame attending to our family to do a whole lot of stuff with church at that time. And so we backed off and, you know, of course my brother and I were like, oh, fine by us. <laughs> hey, sorry that we're not going, but, but anyway, so we kind of, you know, were untethered from all things spiritual for quite a while. But then even that, I, you know, you can't help to avoid the emptiness of that. You, you may enjoy the sleeping in from time to time, but there's nothing in that trade-off versus what it is to, to, to really have fulfillment in all of the ways that you were made to be fulfilled. And I, I didn't have that. I, I filled it with, with empty, carnal, fleshly, indulgent pursuits. And by the time I was a senior in college, I, I realized that not only am I empty, I am a, a stain, a blot on humanity. And perhaps I need to take a look at the course of my life. And, and I began then to study the Bible on Friday mornings with uh, one of the ministers, with a priest on campus, and made, made a kind of a diligent effort at that. Would, would sit down for a, about 45 minutes every Friday morning in these Bible studies, uh, go back and do the, the required readings, and really try to make a, a concerted effort, a somewhat earnest effort, at least to my perspective at the time, to try and really seek God and figure out what the grand scheme is, what is the greater purpose of life, rather than just trying to fulfill my hedonistic pleasures and, and lusts, and, and perhaps then to go on from here and make as much money as possible, right? That, that, that's all that I could see is maybe what my life's goal was. And, you know, and then I would maybe redefine it with some picket fence type stuff and some family fulfillment type stuff. But even that, I realized, is, is really just me trying to fill some of my own needs, or something that must be transcendent to that. But interestingly, even after having gone through this long series of Bible studies and going through some very, well, uh, very real uh, spiritual 
um, exercises and even ceremonies, you know, at the end of it, I was like, wow, that, that really didn't actually have a, a, a profound change. And before long, I started to drift back to, to ugliness yet again. Then after I was married, made some more efforts. And likewise, came away frustrated. Yet another effort still came away frustrated. And to the point where I, was, I thought, oh my goodness, like, is it all really just this shallow? Is there not something more? It seems like there ought to be something more. There's a, there's a stirring inside of me that is, is trying to prompt me to, to recognize that there must be something more. But, but every effort I make, I come away frustrated and, and wondering, if, is, this, is this going to be the, the course of my life? And maybe I just need to fulfill it with some other things. We're going to encounter a fellow here who's described as an Ethiopian eunuch. And the, the word eunuch has, interestingly, two meanings in the first century in Greek. Uh, it is the word for one who is a, a top minister in an administration of any sort of um, uh, country or, or a court. Uh, but eunuch also means uh, one who has been castrated. And in, you, you think it would make sense, actually, that if you're going to be in a royal court, you can't be a threat to the queen in any way. And so this eliminates the threat rather effectively. And yes, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a different time. And it's, it's hard for us to kind of imagine that. But because the two were so closely associated, the word eunuch was also the word for prime minister, in a sense. Uh, but this fellow happens to be not necessarily the prime minister, but he is actually the, let's say, the uh, uh, you know, uh, treasury department chair. And, and here's the, this guy that we encounter now. So, again, we're, we're at the very southern tip here as we pick up in the next verse. Uh, each verse will go a little bit faster than that first one did. <laughs> so he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. An important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. I know some of the other translations have had Candace, and that sounds like a name, right? Because a lot of people name their, their kids Candace even today. But it's not, it would be like naming your kid Caesar or naming your kid Pharaoh. Not that you would do that for a variety of reasons, but Candace is very similar to Pharaoh or to Caesar. It's a title, not actually a name. And by the way, Ethiopia is a pretty broad swath of land at this time. It is also known in the Bible, especially throughout the Old Testament, as Cush, C-U-S-H. And the Cushites would be the Ethiopians. That would be the land that today would be south of Egypt. Directly south of Egypt now is, is uh, Sudan. It's also called Nubia, not to be confused with Nambia, which apparently is a new made-up name for a country somewhere in Africa, or, or, or to be confused with Nubia. Namibia, but, but uh, Sudan, Southern Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Yemen, that, that whole broad swath would have been Kush or would have been Ethiopia. It, it's one of the largest land masses and, and one of the great peoples that God always had in view of bringing into the covenant with him. And my goodness, one of those people, not just any of those people, but an important official in charge of all the treasury of that grand land is the person that comes into focus here. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home, and by the way, to Jerusalem to worship, 
I tried to like Google map this thing or Google direction this thing, and it's uh, quite convoluted, but it's over 2,000 miles. That's a serious journey, and if you're taking this journey on some sort of a cart or chariot, then this is something that's at least a month for him to be able to do. Now, did he take a sabbatical to do this? I'm not sure. We don't know about all of that, but it is a serious commitment on his part to take that much time only to be able to get to Jerusalem. He probably went to Jerusalem for one of the three feasts, uh, and, and I'll explain why in just a moment on that. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. And according to this text, the chariot will not stop for a little while still. So this is like Philip kind of like running along, like saying, hey, 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 do you, do you understand what you're reading? I mean, that's the, that's the beginning of this whole encounter here, is he has to run up to the chariot. Now, he is a dignified Jewish man. Jewish men do not run. Not for nothing. That, that is going to undermine your nobility every which way you can. On top of that, already being a, a fellow who, in Jerusalem, they've given away everything that they've had. They're under the, the, the great um, arm of persecution that has scattered them. He's got nothing. He's on the run, on the lamb. And, and now he's in the middle of a desert place. And he's also probably had to kind of hitch up his cloak to gird his loins, because it's the only way you're gonna be able to run and keep up with even kind of a slow-moving chariot at this point in time, is to then hitch up your loins. So there's nothing about you that in any way looks anything but absolutely silly. And, and also, the absurdity of a, of a Jewish man running up to a castrated Ethiopian at this point in time. There is no way that Philip, on even his best, most enlightened, inclusive day, would, would ever think, as that chariot goes by with the people that he saw inside, I think I better go run after that. By the way, Ethiopians, I'm sorry, eunuchs rather, would be known right away from their appearance. Because a, a eunuch who serves in a court would have been castrated by the age of eight. And because of that, they would have feminine characteristics in their face, uh, even it, it, it begin a bit in their body too. They wouldn't have overly masculine characteristics. So they would not have facial hair, which would have been a bit of an oddity at that time, except for Egyptians. And you would, you would see something rather odd about even the appearance of one's face if you happen to be a eunuch. And also, he, he also would have been a, a radically different color from, from Philip too, radically different culture. And for Philip, to look across and say to himself, oh, that seems like somebody that probably would like to hear the gospel now that I'm on the run telling you to. No, not in a million years. Obviously, it's even interesting how the Holy Spirit has to guide him step by step by step. He doesn't say, hey, here's the long term. Here's the end game, Philip. Here's what, where we're heading towards. No, he tells them one step at a time. And it's interesting. Just go up, stand near it. And, and then actually afterwards, the, the Spirit is going to then continue to, to prompt him along the way here. But here's the deal, that if, if this were not spirit-driven, then this church that we see here in the Bible 
would not be an inclusive and diverse church that we marvel at in the scriptures. And, and by the way, too, we talk about this a lot here. It's very easy to be a homogenous church of all people who look like a Philip or all people who look like an Ethiopian. That's not hard to do. But you know what can only be done by the Holy Spirit is to bring this about. To have this kind of inclusivity, to have this kind of diversity, and this kind of absolute harmony and unity in, in bringing that about. Sure, you can maybe kind of get us all in the same room, but are we actually going to go to each other's homes for dinner and engage in, in real discipleship one with another? Praise God, we do. I think we lose sight of that, but my goodness, what a great opportunity for us to, again to realize only by the Holy Spirit could this even have been a remote possibility, and it's a real possibility for us. Amen. So he ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Heard him because everybody read out loud that. As, as much as you're trained in school to stop moving your lips, stop moving your lips, there was none of that then. He was reading a, a Greek version of the Old Testament, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. There, to save space on the scrolls, because the scrolls were so valuable and he owned one, there are no spaces between the words. Now, you would never think, like, maybe just let me, let me write smaller. You don't, that's what we do today because paper is a bit more plentiful. It was such a rare commodity that not only did they write small, but they actually left no spaces in between words to get as much as possible on these priceless vellums as, as they had here. So to even read it, in order to kind of make out the words themselves, you had to kind of work it out through the spoken word. By the way, even throughout history, when... Augustine writes in the 4th century, 5th century AD, end of the 4th century, one of the things that he writes that he says was remarkable about Ambrose, the man that uh, brings him to faith, is that Ambrose, unlike any other man that he had ever known at that time, could read without moving his mouth, could read silently. That was a great mark of, of Ambrose of Milan uh, to, to Augustine of Hippo. So nonetheless, back, with, back we go to this text. He's reading, and, and, and how does Philip know that he's reading? Because he's reading, and everybody would read aloud. And as he's reading the Isaiah the prophet, Philip says, Do you understand what you are reading? And braces himself, I'm sure, because Philip is a, a ragamuffin, girded, dirty, on the run, running up to a rather impressive array of someone that's, that's so well supplied that he's able to make this 2,000 mile journey. And it's royal equipment. And here's the response. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. And this happens to be Isaiah 53 verses 7 and 8 the very center of the servant song of Isaiah, which begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and makes its way to the end of 53, to verse 13. And here's what he was reading aloud. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? 
Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Let's pause there for a second and, and uh, take a look at some of the things that I think are really worthy to understand a bit more deeply if we're going to be as astounded by this story as first century readers would have been as they had this story retold to them. My first point is, I'm only a dried up tree. The title of my sermon today is Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. <laughs> but my first point is, I'm only a dried up tree. Why do I say that? Because it's, it's what would have been on the same scroll, probably in the very same area where he was reading. This scroll that this eunuch would have held so dear. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing, valuable thing that he has in his possession. But this scroll that he has... Now, we've got to understand a few things about this guy. First of all, he is an Ethiopian eunuch, but he has gone to Jerusalem, most likely for one of the three feasts, where everybody gathers in a beautiful, holy assembly before the Lord. This is what drove him to Jerusalem. But I think there's something else that drove him to Jerusalem... If indeed he is a converted Jew, which I think he is, by the way. Why do I think that? Because it's not until Acts chapter 10 where the Bible makes a massive deal about Gentiles. That is non-Jews, non-converted Jews as well. Gentiles coming into the covenant with the Lord. And again, if, if this guy is a, a Gentile and not a converted Jew, a proselyte, then I think the Bible would have stopped here and now, and made a big deal about that. Because it doesn't do it until Acts chapter 10. What I really think is the case is that you have here an Ethiopian that became so enthralled with the influence of, 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 of uh, Israel, with the influence of Judaism, with the wonder and the elegance of the scriptures, that he attended a synagogue in Ethiopia, of which there were many, by the way, and a very strong Jewish presence throughout Ethiopia, would have been most likely that he could have come in contact with that and really been not only engaged, but surrendered, so much so that he would become an, an all-out proselyte convert to Judaism. So if, if that's the case, then probably at the first opportunity that he had to be able to negotiate with Candake, that if I could get some time off, the one thing I've always wanted to do all my life as I've now studied out Judaism, is to join with all of the people in festal celebration before the Lord. What could be more wondrous than that? But why was he so excited to do that? And this is what he would have read, by the way, in this very same scripture. And it talks about a dried up tree. And if you can't read it on there so well, go ahead and turn over to Isaiah 56. We'll spend a bit of time in, in Isaiah anyway, so go ahead and turn over to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3. Imagine being a eunuch. Imagine being a man in a culture where you didn't likely ask for this. You may have grown up in a, in a slave class, groomed to be the chief financial officer of an entire country. Again, you didn't ask for it, yet you rose to great prominence. But despite all of the success and career achievement that you had, there was still something that obviously was amiss in your life. In a culture 
where the greatness of your life is often measured in your children, this was not going to be in any way part of your life, in any way part of your honor. And, and there's no way that he ever had a day where that didn't weigh heavily on him. And so as he came to know this God of Israel, he came to know the scriptures and came to read this most precious of all scrolls in his possession, he reads in Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. That must have been his worry before he even went to the assembly, right? Like, I'm going to make my whole way there, and what might happen? And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dried tree. What a picture. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Wow, right? That, that passage ends with, Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Amen. And in the Septuagint Bible, that would have been ta ethne, all ethnicities. My house will be a house of prayer, inclusive of all people, of all ethnicities. Now imagine you as a eunuch having been emptied of one of the great blessings that you'd hoped life would include, one of the great honors. And, and now you read here that something better than sons and daughters. Instead of my name dying with me, my name will be a name of honor that will live on because of something that this prophet is promising. Amen. However, he had to hedge his bets a bit to do this because the law clearly states something different from the, what the prophet is saying. There is going to be a new thing that happens with eunuchs here. And it is a new thing because what the law says in Deuteronomy 23.1 is this. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. He knew that. He knew the law because the law would have been expounded upon in his synagogue all the time. Deuteronomy would have been very familiar ground, most familiar ground to him. He knew that, but yet despite this, he makes the pilgrimage because of the promise that just may be in effect. Could it be that this, this new dispensation, that this new thing of the Lord is in effect already, and that when I get there, I'll find out that eunuchs have a name. Eunuchs have honor. Eunuchs have access. Eunuchs are acceptable. But likely, he got there and he was greeted with a Levite or a priest that was a gatekeeper. And with high hopes soaring, 
Sometimes that's a dangerous thing, right? To let your hopes get too high. We want to hedge our bets on our aspirations and our hopes. But he didn't. He said, you know what? I'm going to reckless abandon. I'm going for this. And he walks straight up. Knowing Deuteronomy 23. Walks straight up to see would his sacrifices be acceptable? Would he be brought into one of the festal celebrations of all God's people with raucous love and joy before the Lord? Would he be accepted? Would he come in? But this time of Isaiah is not recognized by the priests and by the Levites. And just as he comes in anticipating entrance, he would have heard, not you. Deuteronomy 23.1, not you. You're not welcome here. You will not enter. And with that, he turns around, prepares his chariot, perhaps dejected, certainly disappointed, gets in his chariot and starts to make his way back home. None of this, of course, is out of view of the Lord. And as he makes his way back home and is just about to leave Israel itself. Again, it's almost like someone that is at the end of their rope, holding on to that last little bit. And, and I'm sure he must think, this is it, I'm, I'm about to leave Israel. I'm about to leave Israel. I may never go back. I may, may never know the richness and the fulfillment that I always hoped for. He's about to cross the threshold from Gaza into Africa. And just as he's about to do that, he decides, let me look at this one more time. Let me read this Isaiah. Because there's something in this Isaiah that I can't get out of my head. It seems like something having to do with this suffering servant is going to bring about the bounty for the eunuch. Something about this suffering servant that is mentioned right before the blessings and the promises to the eunuch. Something about him, I don't get, and, and, and maybe I don't understand yet, but I need to understand what it is that is going to precipitate the, the inclusion of the eunuchs. And so he's wrestling then with whoever this is. Who is this wondrous person that he has in view here? This person that will bear the sins of many, will bear the iniquity of many, will take on their shame, who is the one that reversed all of this by his own sacrifice? Who could this be? And the beauty is that despite having been dejected, he doesn't write God off. He opens his Bible one more time to take a look. To realize, I am, I am a dried up tree. But one day I will not be. And somehow or another... It has something to do with this servant that we see here. My second point is, in charge, yet in need. So when Philip finds him, again, don't think of Ben-Hur chariot here. Think more like Queen Elizabeth's carriage. And that would probably be a little bit more closely in view. Or, in modern day, think of the biggest, fattest Escalade making its way through the desert. Uh, yet with probably a little armada of little cars and, and uh, other attendants uh, making it right. And, and he probably had a driver, by the way. He, he wasn't driving and he would have been in the back of this, this carriage of sorts. But while he is a, a dried up tree, nonetheless, he took the lot that was 
dealt him, in, or the, the cards that were dealt him in life, and he played a good hand. Right? I mean, he, he sought the Lord. He found a synagogue. He rose in power. He rose in, in his mastery. And he rose to be in charge of all the treasury of one of the great nations on earth. This is, this is who he is. And he's riding large. And, and as he is, imagine the tendency that you might have as someone comes up to you who, again, is like a vagabond. Someone who runs up to you and you own the scroll. You know how to read. By the way, that's a rare thing too. You know how to read. You are devoted enough to own a scroll. You are wealthy enough to have the wherewithal to have a scroll. You've got all of this going your way and you're working it out. You've studied it out. You've been to Jerusalem. You're making this work. You've studied in the synagogue. You've, you've actually decided in a radical way to rearrange your life for the Lord. And as you're reading it, someone comes up to you and says, Do you understand what you're reading? Oh my goodness, the temptation that must have been there for him. To say, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've just done? Do you know what I've been through? Do you know the effort that I make for the Lord? Oh, it could have been so easy, right? He's as successful as you could be given his circumstance. And yet, we would have never heard of this man. And this man would have never fully or truly connected to God if he had decided, I got this. What's this interruption in my life? Is this another beggar looking for alms? And just having a creative way of doing it. We would have never heard of this man. If he had not been not just a seeker. But humble. Humble as well. In charge yet in need. And these wondrous words. Some of the most beautiful exemplar words of humility in all of our New Testament. How can I unless someone explains it to me? Wow. You know, the context of conversion is always community. I know it was for me. And even as I was at the end of my tether, in my hopes of finally knowing God, becoming intimate with Jesus, it seemed like it was a write-off for me. Until a neighbor bumped into me, disrupted my life, and basically asked me, would you like to learn more about the Bible? And you know what? I'm like, hey, I, 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 I made a, an adult decision to study the Bible as a 22-year-old. I went after it on a weekly basis. I did all the assignments. I've studied these things out. I've read through all of the... I could have I said any of those things. Praise God that I said something a little less prideful. Which was, all right, how about this? Maybe I'll study with you, but let me like kind of do a bunch of reading first. Let me kind of bone up on this one more time, right? That was my halfway covenant of, I am so sticking proud, but I know you'll know it because you're a godly man. And so I'll say something that to me doesn't sound so proud, which to you, of course, does sound proud, but I don't know that because I'm darkened in my, my pride. But, but nonetheless, let me, let me throw that out there and at least Heisman you off for a moment because I don't know if I'm ready for all that's going to come with all of this. But... 
But, but praise God that that man persisted in my life to, to really keep asking, do you understand what you're reading? I'm about to. I'm about to. Hey, you've been reading for a while. Do you understand what you're reading? You know, I'm almost done with the, the kind of the reading plan that I had here. Just, just give me a moment. Do you understand what you... But always said with kindness and sincerity and humility on his part. I mean, just wore me down with godliness. I thought, oh, all right, let's see. And uh, so I, I took a ride with him in his chariot. And praise God for what it is that happened. But let me, let me share this with you. If, if you're right now seeking God and, and feeling a bit as though it's not going the way that you'd like it to go, or that perhaps you've given it some effort in a variety of ways in your life, invite someone into your life. Invite someone into your life with full access. No filters and see what it is that God wants to do. Invite the Holy Spirit through Holy Spirit orchestrated friends that are probably already in your life to come on in and sit down with you and read the Bible together. And even for any of us that are on a path of growing in our relationship with God, we all know this, right? That anytime we sit with someone else and we read through the Bible, it's almost as though it, it has a you know, tenfold impact. Let's never stop that. But, but especially if you're really in a, in a seeking mode of thinking, you know, I, I know I ought to have had the definitive breakthrough, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, let me, let me encourage you with this. Pray even now. You can pray silently. Pray even now, please, Holy Spirit, give me a humility like this Ethiopian eunuch. Give me a humility to invite someone into my life. There's plenty of room in your chariot. There's more room in your schedule than you let on. There are seams there that God wants to fill with phenomenon that is transcendent. Extend the hand of humility and watch God fill your soul with wonder. Just as he does with this man. And then finally, look, here's Jesus. So eunuch then, uh, the eunuch asks Philip, tell me, who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? The answer to that question will literally change the trajectory of the rest of his life and perhaps the trajectory for all of Ethiopia. The answer to that is no little bit of Bible trivia. The answer to that changes everything. And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about, not Isaiah, not about anyone else, and not even about himself. It was the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Now that I know Jesus. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Amen. Now, just to stick on the humility point one more time. It's very rare for someone to say this. To say, what stands... Philip, I'm asking you. What stands in my way 
of being baptized into Jesus now that I've learned about him. But here's what he's saying to him. Philip, here I am. Evaluate me. Peer into me. Ask me what it is that you need to ask me. But go ahead, evaluate me. Am I ready to surrender and enter into the magnificence of all that we just studied? Am I ready to enter into the grace that has caused my knees to go weak? Please, Philip, tell me, am I ready for this very thing? Yes, you are. Thank you. <laughs> and he was. And he was. And it's, it's marked not only by that humility, but also by a realization of the grace. Because he's the one who realizes, as soon as the gospel is finished, Oh my goodness, you just preached the gospel to me, Philip. And is it not odd that in this desert road, that we've now come across a body of water in which I can be submerged into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How amazing is that? This is a man who understands the gospel, is excited by the gospel, but, but let's just appreciate for a moment Jesus in this gospel. I'm going to read a couple selections from Isaiah 53. And my, oh my, what it is that we encounter. Now, if you want to jump there, go ahead. But I'm just going to read some things. And imagine a eunuch, again, who, as a young man, perhaps as a boy, as a slave, indentured into this service in the court, would have been, the way that, that they describe the word for castration here is a crushing that would have occurred, a, a, a cutting off, a separation. Look at what he would have read. I'm going to read a couple of selections. I'm going to start in Isaiah 52. Verse, 30, verse uh, 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance, that is his face, the Ethiopian eunuch would have been given away by his face. Everybody knows a eunuch in the first century by the appearance of his face. And this word appearance in the, in the Greek or in the Hebrew even is the word for his visage or his face. His face was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form, now we're talking about your body, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Can you imagine the eunuch saying, who is this servant? Who would undergo this? Who would voluntarily step in the way of this so that I could have what Isaiah 56 says? Who would do this? Who is this person? Tell me, Philip. Chapter 53, verse 2, in the middle, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. What just happened to the eunuch in the gates of Jerusalem? A man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom we hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. You know like when you're going through a breakup and every song on the radio is a love song? We're like, how do they know? How do they know? Oh, stop it. Carol King, you're killing me. You're peering into my soul right now with those words. 
I would imagine, as the Ethiopian eunuch is hearing this, he's like, oh, who is this? How does he know? Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Even more so, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Verse 7, what he was just reading. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before he shears his silence. He didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment taken away, yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Cut off, punished. And in the Greek version of this, who can speak of his descendants and crushed? In the middle of verse 10, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And finally, in the final sentence of verse 12, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Philip, who is this? Who is this who would do such a thing? Did the prophet here do such a thing? If he did, then why couldn't I go in? Who has done such a thing? And Philip was able to say to him, then and there, even though they're blinded to it at the gates of the temple, even though their pride preempted you from knowing him, he's already done this. This man has already come. He's not a future expectation. This is not a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. But, Ethiopian, this is a prophecy that has been fulfilled by the most wonderful of all men. A man that I knew. A man that changed us all. A man that we follow. And not just any man. The Son of God Himself. God humbling Himself to come and be this for you, Ethiopian. To be crushed so you will no longer be labeled as crushed. To be forsaken. Who had to cry out, why, 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 God, have you forsaken me? So that you will never have that sentiment in your heart ever again. This man came, this Jesus came to take away your stain, your shame, your disgrace. He wants you to no longer be a dry tree. He wants you to now be one that walks with dignity into the Holy of Holies itself. You can do all of this because this man that you're reading about here has done all of this for you. This Jesus has done all of this for you. And now you can enter into his honor, enter into his righteousness, enter into all that he has done for you. You can cast off all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your pain, all of your disgrace, all of your separation, all of that will go. And he also does it in such a beautiful way, in a way that is unmistakable. Just as he died, was buried, and was raised again, so he tells us, 
to go and baptize the nations. You are that Ethiopian. And you can likewise be buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And in doing so, all of your sins will be credited to him. All of your shame will be borne by him. And as you rise a new creation, you rise with all his honor, all his righteousness, all his status, all his standing. That's what will happen when you are baptized. And just as Philip perhaps finishes saying that, the Ethiopian says, Philip, look, here's water. And here's Jesus. What do you think, Philip? Can I be baptized? Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? And Philip, realizing the man's faith, realizing the man's joy in Christ, look at what happens as we finish this. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the, the, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, more work to do, and the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. And Philip, however, appeared in Azotos, traveled about, preaching the gospel, all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And as a bit of an epilogue nerdy note here, the largest army in all the Bible is described as the Cushite army in 2 Chronicles. That army is numbered at a million, and they came against the forces of Asa, of both the northern and southern tribes of Asa, some 600,000 men themselves. But the largest army of one million men were Ethiopians, and they took this exact same route. They came up through Africa, up through the Gaza Strip, and there encountered God. And that entire army was defeated soundly and absolutely. And what could not be done by the work and strength of man was absolutely accomplished through the Holy Spirit of one man. Amen. That one man takes the route that those million men who fell along the road took. That one man takes that same route back and church history tells us that he was the result of many millions coming to know the Lord. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful Jesus that we've got. And for us, here's my final charge. I've got an Ethiopian charge and I've got a Philip charge. And I really, please, in such a beautiful story as this, do not let this fall to the ground. In my Ethiopian challenge to me and to you, Invite someone today to boost your seeking through Scripture. That is, invite them into your seeking of God through Scripture. Invite someone into your Bible studies. Invite someone to initiate a Bible study with you. And my Philip challenge, pray for and follow the Spirit's prompting to disrupt someone's life with the Gospel. Every day make that your prayer, and every day make that your hopeful anticipation as you make your way through life. Who is it that the Spirit is prompting me to, to, to go and see? This happens to us all more than we want to admit. Or it's like, oh, I, I, oh, really, right now? But he's so different from, really, right now? My goodness. 
Everything turned because Philip was sensitive to and surrendered to and celebrating in the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Let that be our charge as well. Amen. We're dismissed. We'll have a leaders meeting for the men in just a moment. Thank you.